Welcome back to the Unbreakable Me podcast, where rock bottom has built more heroes than privilege ever could. So the first episode was a lot. I cried a lot. It was almost like a therapy session, to be honest. And I thought that for episode two, what I would do is I would continue to tell you the rest of my story with my eating disorder before moving forward. So at the end of the last episode, I spoke about how my mom had come back from overseas and how my illness was sort of tearing my whole family apart. Now, when it comes to anorexia, as I explained in the last episode, it's very consuming. It's a very manipulative disease and it makes you a very self-absorbed human being um, because you just can't, you really just can't get out of your own head. Um, it's, you, can, you can't run away from the things that are going on. And what I didn't realise was how unwell I was. You know, I always, I thought I was always fine. But in a conversation that I had with my mum not that long ago, I was talking to her and I was saying, you know, I, I remember being in ICU, um, you know, one time and this happened. She said, no, no, Maddie, you were in ICU three times. You were removed from the medical ward and you were taken to ICU three times. I don't remember those times. I don't know if it is a trauma response that I have blocked it out and that my brain just kind of just doesn't want me to remember certain aspects of my illness. But one admission that I do remember in ICU, and again, I didn't realize how bad I was at the time, is I remember waking up in ICU and I knew I remember this, this ICU admission. Um, I'd been put there because I was such, I was so dehydrated. My body was really struggling. And I remember waking up to all of the, all of the, you know, the machines beeping and carrying on. And the next minute I've got people around me throwing hot towels on me. And, and I'm not exactly sure what was going on, but from my understanding was my heart rate had dropped so low that my body was starting to shut down and I, my whole body was like I was becoming very, very, very cold. Um, so they had to warm my body back up. They had to whatever they needed to do to bring my heart rate back up. And at this time, they had called my parents to say, you need to get to the fucking hospital. She may not make it through the night. That's how sick I was. And this is not even, this is, this is some of the earlier admissions. This is not even, this is right around near probably the first year or so. This is before it gets more and more and more intense in my head. I was at the early stages of my anorexia. I was able, not able, I was, I guess, able to get my body in a much unhealthier state um, because I wasn't being, I guess, as closely monitored. I was was able to get more dehydrated. I was able to, I guess, exercise in secret a lot more because it was really early on in the illness. People, It was very easy to make people think that I was, I guess, doing the right thing when really Anna, my my insta, was just, was really controlling everything in the background. Um, So, Earlier on, I was able to, I was, I spent a lot more time in medical wards and IC and ICU wards because my body, because I wasn't being as closely monitored all the time. I was slipping very much further into really unhealthy medical territory. But over the years, what ended up happening was because I was more closely monitored, 
I would be, it would be caught a lot earlier that my weight has slipped um, and that I would be just readmitted back into the Kim's ward. Now, the Kim's ward was a child psychiatric ward at the Mater Children's Hospital. Um, it is a locked ward. You cannot get out of it. Um, it is very much like being in prison. And the problem with these wards, I am not going to say anything bad, so please no one take my, my words out of context, but the problem with these wards or, or these environments is it's very much like a prison. So if you think about the statistics on people that go to jail and how many come out and rebuild their lives, the statistics are about well, 75 to 80% of people just then continue to stay in that really negative cycle in and out, in and out, in and out of jail. Well, it's very much the same in, and, and they they basically go in, uh, you know, a, a petty, do having done, a, say, a petty crime, and they come out a better criminal. And then the, the, it sort of ramps up, you know. It's kind of the typical thing that happens within in jail systems. It can be very much the same with the psychiatric boards. So you just become better at the thing that you're in there for. So I was in hospital with, girls that had bulimia, that had anorexia, that had um, less severe cases of eating disorders. I was in hospital with with girls that had tried to commit suicide, overdose, uh, really bad self-harmers. I was in hospital with self-harmers that had had from, there was a girl and she, from her wrist to her shoulder on both arms and from her knee to her hips on both legs was just cut marks, scarred cut marks, all healed, but all scars. There was no, there was no fresh skin. There was not, there was no unscarred skin on her body. I was in hospital with a girl that had set herself on fire as a way of self-harming. These are the people that I spent three to four years of my childhood with. So what happens is that during those years, and I made some really great friends. I have lost a few. Unfortunately, that succumbed to their particular mental health issues. But you make really great friends, right? But the problem is that you also become a lot better at your mental illness. So if you, for myself with my anorexia, when I had my ways of coping taken away because they were refeeding me and I was having nasogastric feeding at night and, and I was being forced to have, you know, having meal plans and, and things that I had to do and I had things I had to achieve to be able to be discharged and become an outpatient. Well, while my means of coping, which is controlling my food and my exercise was taken away, what happens is you then start to try other people's versions of coping. You know, I went through a period where I self-harmed. I went through a period where I overdosed on laxatives. I went through a period where I was, you know, my form of overdosing was was laxative abuse. You you start to use, you know, I was never someone that purged. I then started to use ways of learning how to purge, like like individuals with bulimia. If you start to use their way of coping because yours is taken away, and you learn a lot from each other. And it is a very toxic environment. You forget what it's like to be a normal teenager. You forget what it's like to just go to school and go to parties and probably get drunk when you're, you know, 14 or 15 on four cruises at the party on the Saturday, whatever it is, right? You know, you miss the first kiss with the boyfriend. You you know, you miss all these, all these normal things, you know, getting a job and, you know, stressing about 
an assignment that's due, all of these normal adolescent things, arguing with your mum about, no, that suit is too goddamn short and you can't wear it out the house, you know, all just normal stuff that you want to be arguing with your teenager about, you know, normal developmental stuff. You know, I wasn't involved in any of that. I was around these individuals that had chronic mental health issues. So my mental health got worse and worse and worse, you know, and the best thing that ever happened. So during my admissions, I was admitted across the three to four years into the hospital. There came a point in time where they actually put me on a court-ordered involuntary treatment order. So what that meant was that I wasn't able to manipulate my mum and dad into doing, into getting the doctors to release me early and all that sort of stuff. I wasn't, my, my illness wasn't able to manipulate me and then manipulate my mum and my dad into getting them to do what I wanted to go into bat for me all the time to say, she can do it this time. She can do it this time. So that that pressure was taken off my mum and dad. The psychiatrist and the team at the hospital decided that what they would do is they would take that away and they would just put me on an involuntary treatment order. That way I couldn't blame my mom. I couldn't blame my dad. I couldn't, I couldn't argue with them because it was like, I just could just hate the team, you know, and I already hated them anyway. So, so they did that. They put me on this involuntary treatment order and I remained on that until I turned 17. I'm uh, sorry, until I was just about to turn 18. Now, when you turn, obviously I was in a child psychiatric ward. So once I was just about to turn 18, there came a point in time where I had to be, I either had to be discharged permanently from the the system um, and obviously the voluntary treatment order would be removed because I was, I'd reached the age bracket for it or, and I could be taken home or I could be pretty much taken straight from there and I, I'd be taken to um, Barrett. Now, Barrett is an adult psychiatric ward um, in the park at Wacol. So you have Barrett and then basically have the jails all around it it's a I've been there to visit people I never went there myself um but it's quite a phenomenal place it's quite a look it's again I know some people need to be there but it's not a great place to be and I was lucky enough that uh, my mom and dad decided that they would let me go home first let me just try first again you know let's go try again Maddie you know for the 567th fucking time let's just go try again and see if you can do it without the without all the, you know, outpatient care. And because I was nearly 18, the outpatient care was less too. And because the involuntary treatment order had been removed, the, the um, outpatient care was less, you know. So I just had to see a regular dietitian. I just had to go and see, um, you know, like the GP and get weighed in and all that sort of stuff. And it's very, very easy to make yourself look a whole lot heavier than what you are when you're just being weighed at the GP in a gown. You know, there are things like strapping weights to your legs. There are things like water loading. I remember having to go for weigh-ins at hospitals or at, at the GP after school, and I would sit in the toilets before having to go up to the hospital, and I would drink, like, astronomical amounts of water, you know, like three, four, four and a half, five litres of water across a 45-minute to hour span to, because, for, you know, for every litre, that's a kilo, you know. So there was a, a first time I don't have to make up two kilos. That was easy. But as my weight declined, I had to make up three kilos, four kilos, five kilos, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, on, on the scale. And that's where water loading became a really big part and strapping weights to myself when I physically couldn't do any more water loading. 
Now, the problem with water loading that I didn't know at the time is it can actually fucking kill you because you flush your body of all of the nutrients, your heart, your body, everything, the potassium, you, you, you flush everything, you actually go into cardiac arrest. I didn't know that. I didn't know that when I was doing this on a weekly basis that I was essentially almost putting myself into cardiac arrest. These are the things that you don't know when you're doing these things. And also at the time, you don't give a flunk fuck about. You know, I remember having people say to me, you know, what about one day when you want to have babies and, you know, you have to get your menstrual cycle back, you have to be well. And I remember thinking it like, uh, you know, a small, a very small amount of weight and right in the depth of, of Anna, I remember thinking to myself, what the fuck do I want to, why, why do I think about that for? No, babies. I don't know, fuck, do that? No. You know, why would I want that, you know? But now I think I'm so lucky that I got my menstrual cycle back. Anyway, I digress. So I was I was discharged for this this final time. Now, it was actually the best thing that happened because it got me out of that institutionalized cycle. I get asked all the time, how did you go from that to recovery? Like if because they try for three or four years within a rehabilitation style center with all the support in the world and all of the best people in the world to get me better. And it didn't work. And then when I got out, I was able to get better. Now, I honestly believe that the reason is the same reason as why you spend so much time in there getting worse and worse and worse. I was spending so much time with people in there that were unwell that when I came out and now I had to spend all of my, I had to go to school every day. I had to spend time with normal kids doing normal things, you know, eating lunch at lunch times. And trust me, it was very, very difficult going back. But you know, I'd hear about the parties and, you know, the movie dates and the boyfriends and this, you know, I'd hear about all these things. And, and I, and I honestly believe that over that period of time of that 12 months that it took me to, to get better or to, to start the process of getting better, that being around those normalized children, those normalized kids, those normal teenagers doing normal fun things, that's what quietened Anna down. Those things became louder than her. And before I got better, though, after my final discharge, I got significantly worse. I went to my grade 12 formal at 28 kilos. I'm 164 centimeters tall. I currently weigh around about 56, 57 kilos. That is literally half my size. The I still have my formal dress. We had to have my formal dress professionally and personally made to fit me and the waistband of the dress that went around this part of my body doesn't fit around my head now I could not put it on as a headband um I was extremely unwell um and I remember going to the to the formal and one of my friends we had a very good friend for a long time. His name was Dylan. He actually took me. We went in a limo and he was wonderful. You know, he knew all of my story. He knew that, um, you know, because it was a formal, you know, they'd bring out meals and things and he was wonderful. As soon as they put down my meal, you know, he moved it in front of himself and, and he took it away and he didn't put any pressure on me to eat or anything like that. He was very, he was absolutely wonderful. I couldn't have asked for a better man to take me to my formal. And then there was the after party. You know, it's fun after party. You know, you get wild, you get drunk, and whatever you do at the after party, I couldn't do that. 
Now, the kids in my grade were actually nice enough to hold the grade 12 formal party around the corner from my house. And my mum had to come with me because by that time of the night, which, look, it's probably on like 7 o'clock, 7.30, you know, it was pretty evident that I was going to be too tired to even walk home. You know, 28 kilos to have to walk, you know, I've been through all that and that big day and still not having eaten really anything and, you know, to just walk the block back to my house would have been too much, you know. I had to be carried back, you know. It was like 7.30 at night. You know, so I got, ex- I got a lot worse, a lot worse before I got better. But there was a turning point. And I remember I woke up one morning, come down the stairs, and my sister, I can remember my sister and mum were in the kitchen. I remember saying to my mum, would I be a pig if I had another bowl of cereal after I'd had my first little bowl? <laughs> and I was like, she she knew not to make a big deal of it. It's like, oh, yes, no, no, that would be totally fine, buddy. Just, you know, she knew like this is this could be a thing. Like, let's not make a thing of it. That's just kind of that would be fine. Anyway, so not a big deal was made of it. It was just, yeah, no, that'd be fine. No, nothing wrong with that. Whatever. And I remember I had the second bowl, and I'm pretty sure by that stage, Anna was just fucking going bananas at me because my mum will tell you that my recovery was almost worse than my illness because it's it's so you're so uh, it's so chaotic like everything she's telling you everything all those thoughts in your head everything that she's saying you've got to fight against it you know like pretty much tell her fuck off like yeah, that is hard work man you know and I was back at school I was skipping school I went through periods of cutting and self-harming while I was going through my recovery and I would have to take myself down to the doctor to get stitches uh, because, again, I was using other coping mechanisms that I had learnt in the, in the system while I was going through my own recovery. Now, none of those became major issues for me. They're only things that I did a few times, but I did do them. I did go through a period of binging somewhat and purging and it was a really rough road back to becoming well and it took years it took years to go from to go from 28 kilos back up to a more healthier weight took you know a good good 12 months um and it was a slow burn process so grind process sorry but the but rebuilding the rest of my life was probably the harder part so when you go from where I was to 17 and or 18 because I, I did grade I actually did grade 12 at 18 because um, I, I decided to go back back here because I'd missed so much school you have no emotional intelligence you have literally just skipped all of that stuff and at the ripe old age of 18, I met my first boyfriend and what a fucking train wreck that was. So because I didn't fully understand what it meant to be in an adult relationship, you know, I hadn't emotionally developed. I hadn't experienced all those things and this particular first boyfriend was a lot older than me and we started going to nightclubs and then, you know, there was alcohol. Like alcohol for me was such a big thing and I had never really done that and it was a train wreck. 
an absolute train wreck. But the point I'm trying to make across this entire episode is that my illness almost killed me. Being institutionalised for that three to four years was it was required, it was necessary, I understand that, but it was never going to be the thing that saved my life. The thing that saved my life, and if you are listening to this and you have a daughter or a son or a family member or a friend that is going through anorexia or an eating disorder, know that those places will, they will save your life in the sense that you're not going to die while you're being treated by them, but be careful that they're not making their mental health worse. There's a fine line. Don't let them lose touch with reality because inside that bubble, inside that world, inside that psych ward, it's another universe. There's different conversations, there's different people, there's different things going on that you will never understand, that you could never fathom, that you'll never be privy to the conversations that I had. Just be careful that they don't get lost there because it's easy to get lost. Find that beautiful balance between outpatient and inpatient care. And if you are listening to this and you are suffering from this particular illness, whether it be anorexia, bulimia, an eating disorder, a variation of, of that, Know that until you make the decision to fight her, to fight Anna, to be stronger than her, she will always rule your life. And even in recovery and even now at 30, whatever I am, 34, I think, 34, and having been now recovered for many, many years, over a decade, she still controls some of my days. There are still weeks in the years where I can't look in the mirror. There are still weeks in the years that I will opt to undress facing away from mirrors and dress facing away from mirrors. I have exceptionally bad body image days and I will deal with that for the rest of my life and she is very loud on those days, very loud. But I manage her. And if you are the same as me and if you are where I was or you are where I am now, having recovered and she's still loud, know that she is that friend that you want to go away but never will. So you just need to manage her. Because if you have been in the situation, if you have suffered from this illness, you will know that she becomes your friend. She becomes your world, your best friend, everything. It's very hard to let that go. But when you come out the other side and you control more days than she does, then you need to find a way, like I have, to put her aside majority of the time, and just control her and calm her on the days that she's loud. Now, I'm going to leave this episode here, and then on the next episode, I'm going to move on to the next phase of my life. I'm going to talk to you about the death of my father and where that led to the next 
tragedy in my life and the next thing that I had to overcome and how I overcame that. But I just want you to know if you are someone suffering from any of these things, any sort of mental health, anxiety, eating disorders, any sort of anything, and you think that I can help, pop a comment below, send me a DM, jump on my social media, whatever you want to do, jump on my website, okay? I want to be the person you can lean on. I want to be the light at the end of your tunnel and I want you to know that you're not fucking alone. You're not the first person to go through this and you won't be the last. Okay? That's me.